Come join me at Mysterious Stoff Mansion with the seventh guest this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 41 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again, as we always do, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. I'm really excited this week. We're doing a big one. There's a lot to say, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Before we get to that, uh, I guess last episode I was in the midst of, uh, of house painting, and uh, that is now completed. It's all done. So uh, again, thanks to my dad for spending three weeks up in Toronto here with us, uh, working hard day to day with me helping him whenever I could to, uh, to get things done. So now the house is, I'd say, about 90% back together. We got to get some uh, replacement furniture for some old bedroom stuff that we threw out and uh, got to put this little room that I record in back together all the way my books my all my star wars eu novels got to go back on the shelves and um you know i just got to clean up this desk this has kind of been as i think i said in the last show the junk room throughout and uh, all the clothes that uh were held in the uh the bedroom furniture we threw out are kind of in a duffel bag in this room right now which are mostly my funny t-shirts and things like that so all that aside, uh, it's winter. It is snowing. I'm the the skier in me is very happy. Uh, I'm 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 hoping to hit the slopes soon enough. But uh, that's enough about the weather, and that's enough about the the state of my house. Let's get on to the news. So big news out of ID Software this week. So a while back, if you may remember, uh, I reported that John Carmack was stepping back from uh, from his role at ID to help out, or not. To, uh, or at least to uh, to assume the position of CTO at uh, Oculus. I believe the company's called Oculus. Anyways, the company that makes Oculus Rift. Uh, so he did that, and he did not actually resign from his position with id. He said he was going to kind of, uh, you know, share his time between the two positions, plus he had another aerospace company that he's involved with. But uh, that kind of all fell through, and it's now official. Uh, Carmack has officially resigned from id to work with Oculus full-time as their chief technology officer. Uh, you know, despite the fact that uh, he likely wasn't really working at id on, on any, like, kind of day-to-day stuff. I don't know if he was doing any coding or anything like he did back in the day. Uh, yeah, this is kind of, in a way, it's kind of sad. It's It's really, really the end of an era. I mean... Carmack, I mean, you go back to the Wolfenstein 3D episode, you go back to the Doom episode, I'm sure soon I'll do one on Commander Keen, and we'll talk about Quake, and all that, um, you know, Carmack really did define the the FPS genre as it is today, and uh, he's just kind of this this technical genius, and I hope he brings, uh, he brings that genius and that motivation and that kind of throwing caution to the wind and not saying that something was impossible to, uh, to the Oculus Rift project, because frankly, I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, in trying out an Oculus Rift, especially, uh, you know, I like playing kind of simulator games and flight sims and uh, other things like that, MechWarrior, and I just can see incredible potential for, uh, for, for a product like the Oculus Rift with those types of games 
So next, uh, a little while back, I'm not sure if it was this week or if it was last week, uh, a site with the URL thesurvivor2299.com went live. And a few days ago, it updated with the message, nuclear winter is coming in. And then there was a counter saying something like, uh, you know, a couple of days. And uh, it also plays a repeating Morse code over your speakers. Uh, given the message, the style of the text, and some uh, interested parties deciphering the Morse code, it seems, and now this is obviously unconfirmed, but it does seem that this is a teaser site for Bethesda's upcoming Fallout 4. Uh, there's lots of speculation, and we have three more days until we get some uh, some apparent info, but um, from what I see, it looks like this may be some sort of, or a sort of a prequel that uh, that takes place right around the time the bombs fall in the Fallout universe. Uh, you know, Fallout 3 remains one of my favorite games of all time, so uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this one. Hopefully this isn't a hoax, and this is uh, actually going to be some news with regard to Fallout 4. On the Steam front, we have an interesting announcement. Uh, it appears that Steam will soon start implementing user reviews on uh, on all their games in their store. Uh, this promises to be another great tool to help us to see if a game is worth playing or not. I mean, currently on Steam, I don't really love it. Uh, the only real scores are there there are from Metacritic. And, uh, you know, we don't need to get into the whole Metacritic conversation right now. But obviously, as uh, a lot of people that pay attention to kind of the gaming space uh, have seen, Metacritic has its own set of issues and ways to game it and, and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, in other Steam news, this happened just today, the Steam, uh, I guess they're referring to it as the Steam Autumn Sale has gone live. So uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff. I believe it's running from today, which is November 27th, until uh, I think it was December 3rd. I'm not 100% sure. I'm just kind of off the cuffing this one because it only happened today. But, uh, you know, just like Steam's other big sales, uh, there's hourly de- there's uh, flash sales that last for 68 hours. There's daily deals that last for 24 and, um, you know, lots and lots of great games to be had for cheap. Uh, nothing that really jumps out at me right now except for Prison Architect, which is uh, half price. But uh, I don't know if I want to drop the 15 bucks on that right now. Anyways, go take a look. Store.steampower.com. Also, uh, you'll notice something cool if you scroll all the way to the bottom of the page. So if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, this is obviously the, the autumn right now of season-wise. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom of the page... Uh, upside down, you'll see that it's actually the spring sale in the Southern Hemisphere. And if you click on any of the upside down links all the way on the bottom of the page, you actually enter an upside down version of uh, of the uh, of the Steam store, which I think is uh, is pretty funny. And uh, I have some confirmation from people like Alima who are living in the Southern Hemisphere that um, if you do indeed live in the Southern Hemisphere, it says that it's the spring sale and the autumn sale is on the bottom upside down. So it's a funny kind of cool little... Uh, Little thing that tickled my web developer, uh, my web developer bone. So finally, in Star Citizen news, uh, at least as of two days ago, the project hit uh, thirty-one million dollars in total funding, and I think today it may even have hit thirty-three or thirty-four million dollars in total funding. Uh, this unlocks expanded single-player game features in the uh, Squadron Forty-Two portion of the game. And, you know, frankly, I think Chris Roberts and Cloud Imperium are doing a really great job keeping people interested in Star Citizen. And, you know, they keep finding new and interesting ways to convince people to give them more and more money. Uh, We're having a little chat on the Facebook group. And, you know, I feel like this is really the way uh, 
a crowdfunding campaign should be run. And I'm thinking maybe uh, after the holidays, when some more Kickstarter stuff comes out and, uh, you know, we see what's what's going on with Star Citizen, maybe uh, a couple of us get together and we have a little Skype chat chatting about just, you know, Kickstarter and what it's done and where it's been and where it is and where it's going. I think that that might be a little bit of fun, get a little more interactivity between me and you guys. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in doing such a thing, uh, drop me a line, drop me an email, drop me a tweet, drop me something on the Facebook group. And, uh, you know, if there's enough interest, get, you know, three or four or five of us, just a couple of, a couple of people to, to chat about some stuff. And I think that might be a, a little interesting thing to do. Okay, before we get to the main topic, we've got one email from Andreas chatting about uh, Dark Forces from last week. It is from Andreas, and he writes, Hi, Joe. I'm actually not much of a Star Wars fan. I think they're good movies, but they don't hit me like they seem to do many people. Jedi Academy is the only game in the series that I played, and the only single-player campaign at that. It was fun, especially the lightsaber battles were really cool. I wish I had more to say about it, but as a person that only casually enjoys Star Wars movies, that's about it. Love the show, though. Thank you, Andreas, as always. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to get kind of a point of view on uh, on the Dark Forces games, and in fact, on any Star Wars game that uh, that doesn't come from uh, from a big Star Wars fan. A lot of people that, that go and play these games and review these games were, were super into Star Wars and super involved, and you all know, you know, know all the EU and the backstory and all that kind of stuff, but uh, so yeah, it's cool to get kind of a an opinion on it as as simply a game with uh, you know someone who only has I guess some kind of passing knowledge of of Star Wars and the universe and and everything like that. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. Time for okay. On to the main event: the seventh guest. Uh, the seventh guest is a series of two games developed by Trilobite and published by Virgin Interactive. The first game, titled The Seventh Guest, released in the year 1993. So, The Seventh Guest is an interesting game from a genre perspective. This is really the first time we've come across what can be termed an interactive movie. An interactive movie is basically what it sounds like. It's a highly cinematic and scripted adventure-type story told through a series of full-motion video scenes which can generally be played in some non-linear order. Now, interactive movies came about with the advent of Laserdiscs. Uh, Laserdiscs were the first video storage technology that could be accessed in a non-linear fashion. That is, they could be accessed uh, chapter-by-chapter as opposed to rolling through a spool of film or a, a reel or a cassette or, or something like that. Uh, this was taken advantage of in various forms, but the killer app for interactive movie games came in 1983 with Dragon's Lair. Uh, this was a great animated game designed by former Disney animator Don Bluth. Uh, Dragon's Lair and games of its type were fairly straightforward. Uh, the game had a screen and a controller, which was attached to a, a Laserdisc player. You played through the game sequentially, so if you pressed the right button at the right time, the Laserdisc player would roll over to the next chapter in the storyline. If not, it would move to a death chapter and then loop back around to, uh, to where you were for you to try again, or it would ask you to, <laughs> to put more quarters in the machine. Uh, so this is uh, the basis for an interactive movie game. As time progressed, 
the CD-ROM came into common usage. And this allowed developers to dispense with the bulky and breakdown-prone Laserdisc players and simply provide players with uh, one or more CDs containing the game's videos. So instead of going to an arcade, interactive movies entered the home. Now, the seventh guest is much more than a smash the right button at the right time sort of experience, but we'll talk a little bit more about the puzzle aspects of the game as we get into the uh, gameplay section. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. On to the story, which Seventh Guest has in spades. Uh, I won't get too deeply into things because discovering the story and trying to tie it all together is a huge and immensely time-consuming part of the game, or it can be if you want it to. But I guess we should begin at the beginning. Uh, The game takes place in the town of Harley on the Hudson, which I'm fairly confident is fictional. Uh, We begin hearing about the life and times of a drifter named Henry Stoff. He was a drifter, moving from town to town, robbing a gas station here, a grocery store there, until... She was coming home from choir practice, but she never got there. Stoff took her purse and ran away. Spent, Stoff had to run and hide. He sunk even lower. He had nothing. No life, no possessions, no dreams. And that's when the vision came. A doll. And in his dream, Stoff reached out. It was a gift. Stoff carved the doll, whittling the haunting face until it was an exact replica. And when he was done, Stoff went to town, to a bar. The owner had a daughter. Ooh, he said his girl would love the strange doll. And Stoff offered it to the man. And the owner, in turn, offered Stoff food and a place to stay. A simple transaction. The first of many. Stoff grew wealthy, but then the strange virus came, 
and some of the children started dying. Dying, clutching their stalled toys so close. And there was this one last vision, a last dream of a great house, a mansion that the wealthy toy maker was to build. A strange house, a house that scared people. So, in a nutshell, Stuff murders a woman and then has a delusional vision about a beautiful doll. He then carves the doll and gives them out to some local children. This leads him to open an incredibly successful toy store. At the height of his success, a number of children who've bought Stuff toys come down with an incurable virus and die. Guided by another vision, Stuff builds an eerie and foreboding mansion on the edge of town. Once its construction is complete... He is no longer seen by any of the townsfolk. So some time passes, and six people are invited to stay at Stauff's mansion. We have Martine Burden, a former singer, Edward and Eleanor Knox, a somewhat crotchety older couple, uh, Julia Hine, a bank worker who longs for her youth, Brian Dutton, a shopkeeper, and finally Hamilton Temple, who's a stage magician. They all arrive right after the intro clip that I just played, and uh, you know they each walk in and comment on the somewhat abysmal state of the mansion. Uh, they're a little bit odd-looking, though. They're, they're insubstantial and translucent, kind of like ghosts. Stuff, however, is nowhere to be found. We soon find out why they are here. In a letter, Stuff tells them that if they stay the night and solve each of the puzzles that he's left... He will grant them their greatest desires. Once they separate, each guest finds out this message. It's not one letter. It's kind of a letter to uh, to each person. And uh, they are to bring Stauf the seventh guest, a young boy who's entered the mansion on a dare from his friends. Who the boy is, why Stauf wants him, and whether or not he gets him in the end are all things that are revealed as you play through the game. Okay, time for gameplay. So once the introductions of the first six guests are done, you're given control. The game is played from a first-person view. You're inside the head of the game's protagonist. Who are you? Well, that's kind of another oddity. The very, very short, I think even almost one-page or CD insert game manual explains it like so. In the world of the seventh guest, consider yourself an active and mysterious entity known only as Ego. Your role, identity, and purpose is not shown or explained, but is rather experienced as a seamlessly integral part of the total environment that is Stauff Mansion. Because you're looking out from within, you cannot see yourself, but your inner spirit has a voice. Listen to it. So, you're the ego. Uh, Much like Mist, your goal is to get through the mansion, uncovering the story as you go. This is where the other aspect of the genre comes in. While this is certainly an interactive movie, the FMV sequences aren't controlled by smashing the right button at the right time. You have to solve puzzles to reveal why it is you are here. So you start off in the main hall of the mansion, facing a grand sweeping staircase. The mansion is old, dark, and as I said, pretty decrepit. Turning around and clicking the stained glass window behind you, 
plays a scene that describes Stauff's goals from the point of view of Brian Dutton, the shopkeeper. My dear Mr. Dutton, welcome to my house. The arrangement is simple. You are to spend the night as my guest, and in exchange, I will give you your heart's most secret desire. And you know what that is, Mr. Dutton, don't you? I require one thing of you, a special service, a task that I set up for you. There's a guest who hasn't arrived yet, a guest unlike the six of you, a very special guest. Your services involve that guest. You must wonder what that service is, but that is the game, Mr. Dutton, the puzzle I've set for you. This is all I can tell you, Mr. Dutton. In the morning, only one of my guests will walk out of this house with his or her every wish granted. So you can then go up the stairs or to the left or right of them while remaining on the first floor. You maneuver around the mansion using single mouse clicks. The look of the cursor lets you know what you can do on a given area of the screen. So if you see a skeletal hand wagging left and right, that means you can't do anything. It's kind of going, no, can't do nothing. Uh, If it beckons you forward then you can move forward. If it beckons left or right, you can move in those directions. If it shows a skull with a pulsating brain, there's a puzzle to be solved. If you see chattering teeth, a supernatural event can be triggered. A supernatural event is basically a cutscene. Going to the right of the stairs takes you to the library. The first thing you'll notice is uh, the world is done in pre-rendered 3D with FMV characters superimposed on top in their ghostly forms. While each room has multiple camera positions, these positions are all fixed. Movement between them is very fluid and tends to give you a nice overview of kind of the the entire environment. Frankly, for a game that came out in 1992, it looks pretty damn good. So, coming into the library, you see a book on the table and a telescope by some French doors. Hovering over the book allows us to read what the puzzle requires us to do. Hovering over the telescope gives us the pulsating brain icon. Well, I guess this is it. Uh, This first puzzle is one of the easiest in the game. You see a planet, I'm pretty sure it's Mars, uh, with a whole bunch of letters on it. And the letters are all attached by kind of a a whole bunch of paths. You need to trace a path to each letter, hitting each letter only once to form a coherent English sentence. As you're working on the puzzle, Stauff's disembodied voice goads you on. When you do something wrong, he berates and mocks you, and uh, when you succeed, he actually gets upset. Uh, Completing the puzzle rewards you with an FMV sequence. Old man Stauff built a house and filled it with his toys. Six guests were invited one night. Their screams, the only noise. Blood inside the library, blood right up the hall dripping down the attic stairs. Hey, guests, try not to fall. Nobody came out that night. Not one was ever seen. But old Mad Stealth is waiting there. (laughs) Crazy, sick, and mean! So... 
This is kind of how the game progresses. You go from room to room, seeing each of the guests get in the same sort of talk that we hear Dutton get. Uh, there's a total of 21 puzzles in the game. The first time you play through, there's some modicum of order. Uh, some rooms and cinematics only become available as you complete other puzzles. Uh, puzzles also become progressively harder. There's a blood maze, a chessboard puzzle, pattern matching, and an incredibly challenging reverse style uh, puzzle that actually has some degree of an enemy AI to contend with. Now, because you can complete the puzzles in relatively random order, you're also given the story points in a random order. And we have a bit more info on this later in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the email section. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. As we'll see in the dev story coming up, the seventh guest was quite revolutionary for its time. Uh, it was one of the first games to ship exclusively on CD-ROM, and it had some hefty requirements to go along with it. To run it at all, you needed at least a 386DX 20MHz, DOS 5, 2 megs of RAM, a 100% Sound Blaster compatible sound card, a mouse, 10 megs of hard drive space, and, of course, a double-speed CD-ROM. Now, ideally, what you really wanted was at least a 486 with four megs of RAM to kind of run this thing right. Now, one thing I left out was the graphics card. The seventh guest was also one of the first games to require an SVGA, that's Super VGA, graphics card with at least 512K of graphics memory. This meant that we weren't looking at the world in 320 by 200, but much sharper 640 by 480. I'm about 98% sure that this first game still ran in 256 colors, though. Its sequel, The 11th Hour, would be one of the first games to offer 16-bit color depth. When it comes to music, The Seventh Guest is also unique. The game uses a combination of MIDI and Red Book audio tracks. In fact, the second disc in the set could be popped into a CD player. Uh, it was about 30 minutes long and contained uh, all the game music plus two bonus recordings. The game, which consists of, uh, which was kind of the, the basis for the musical cues throughout the game, and uh, another song called Skeletons in My Closet, which played over uh, the end credits. It was kind of a jazzy vocal kind of deal. The music was composed by someone we've come across quite a few times now, Mr. George the Fat Man Sanger. Uh, he had just won an award for his work on Wing Commander, and based on that recognition, uh, he got hired to work on The Seventh Guest. Now, he gave each character in the game their own theme, all based loosely around that main track called The Game. Uh, when you encountered them, their theme would play. However, when two characters interacted, 
Sanger played with the two teams, kind of melding them and intertwining them and playing around with them to create some unique compositions, all playing off that same main theme. It's really, really quite interesting to listen to. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, we're rolling right along here into the dev story. So, like many games we discuss, the seventh guest is tightly coupled with the creation of the company that developed it, Trilobite. So, Trilobite was founded by two men, Graham Devine, or Devine, let's go with Devine, Graham Devine, and Rob Landeros. Now, Graham Devine was born in Glasgow, Scotland in the year 1966. He began his game development career at the age of 14, coding for the TRS-80. By 16, he was cutting high school and working on porting pole position to uh, home computers for Atari. In fact, he took three days off school to complete the project at one point, and his school expelled him. After some cajoling and some berating of the school from his father, kind of saying, why are you expelling my son for doing something that takes a lot of intelligence and skill and dedication and all that kind of stuff, uh, he basically convinced them to reinstate him. Before too long, uh, he caught the eye of a, a British businessman named Martin Alper. Alper was starting a new software company in California that he was naming Virgin Mastertronic. Devine was asked if he'd head up the programming team. He accepted and moved to California from London, which is, I believe, where he was uh, living at the time. At the same time, over in California already, we find Rob Landeros. From the late 1960s to the early 1980s, Landeros worked as an artist in more traditional media. Rob, at the time, was a self-professed Luddite. He preferred pen and pencil to a keyboard. Eventually, though, Rob did get his hands on a Commodore 64 and immediately saw the light. He knew the future of art and graphic design would be on computers. He took a job at Cinemaware, a Thousand Oaks, California software developer. There, he did some graphical work and some some other stuff like that, but he wasn't really fulfilled. He felt as though he was very underappreciated and woefully underpaid. As many people who feel this way do... He started going on some interviews, one of which was with a company called Virgin Mastertronic. A few weeks later, he was brought on board to head the new company's art department. Divine and Landeros hit it off immediately. Landeros would bring in some of the comic work he did back in the 60s, and Divine would eat them up. All this time, Virgin Mastertronic was developing quite a few licensed console games. When they first met, Divine was working on Spot, an NES title licensed by 7up. Suffice it to say, these were not the most challenging of projects. Uh, Divine was getting bored and dissatisfied in, in in his programming role. Landeros saw this, and he proposed an idea. They would form a department of research and development, which basically meant, let's work on doing a CD-ROM game. So working on a CD-ROM game involved going to a lot of industry conferences about the compact disc as an emerging format. In 1990, at the Intermedia Conference, They were in an auditorium watching some presenters burn code to a CD-ROM. 
Most of the developers around them were trying to shovel as much text as possible on there. I mean, you remember the claims back in, you know, 1989, 1990, where you could store an entire library on a single CD. The entire link library of Congress is blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like this, this incredible, incredible development of this huge optical storage medium. Uh, so at this conference, in this session, the presenter asked if anyone was thinking of doing a game on CD. Out of the 800 people in the room, four of them raised their hands. Two of them were Divine and Landeros. They realized that they probably had a bit of a head start here, and they needed to pitch this CD-ROM game that they wanted to make to Alper. Uh, they already had the license to the board game Clue, so they thought they could do kind of a multimedia version of that. Alper wasn't into it. Then, they figured they could do something based on Twin Peaks, since that was very big at the time. Again, Alper said no. It seemed the only real way to go was to come up with their own idea, which, frankly, as I just said, was, was kind of a novelty at Virgin Megatronic, since uh, they really only did a lot of uh, license-type uh, license titles. So, for the next few weeks, the guys sat in front of Microsoft Word and started coming up with an original idea they simply named Guest. Though it started off as a takeoff of Clue it eventually transformed into a haunted house-style adventure that would use still pictures for locations and contain puzzles inspired by the 1987 Cliff Johnson PC title, Fool's Errand. In Fool's Errand, you play a wandering fool who seeks his fortune. The game is structured like a storybook. It's split into five parts, each containing many chapters, and each chapter has some type of puzzle attached to it. Completing a puzzle unlocks later chapters. Sound familiar? Sure does to me. Now, this was early days for CD-ROMs, so you couldn't just hop over to Newegg and buy a $20 burner and get some authoring software for free. Authoring CDs was expensive. So expensive, in fact, that the proposal contained an estimated budget of $600,000, almost three times more than Virgin would spend on a regular console title. So, the proposal was done. It was put on Martin Alper's desk at 11 a.m., on a day late in 1990. He started reading it. By 11.30, he called the two men into his office. He took them out to his Rolls Royce and they drove to the Farmer's Market restaurant in nearby Costa Mesa, California. They sat at the table, Landros and Divine on one side, Alper on the other. Alper looked at them and simply said, you guys no longer work for Virgin. You're fired. Divine and Landros were floored. Before they freaked out too much, Alper expanded on his point. What he really meant was that he wanted them to work off-site and for a subsidiary company that they would form. Uh, his reasoning was this. Virgin was a big, well-known, and well-respected company. This was a very daring and avant-garde project. If it went poorly, it would reflect badly on the company. Also, from a staffing perspective, if it was done in-house, no developer would want to work on the next 7-Up or McKids game. They would want to be on the guest team. Now, Alper had faith in the two men, and he approved the project despite the huge estimated budget. There were two caveats, however. One, the game had to have a floppy version, and two, the new office had to be within 100 miles of Virgin's main office around L.A., Soon, after a, a Virgin Company conference, the two, the two men decided to drive up to Southern Oregon. Landeros used to live there and uh, thought it would be a really great place to set up a creative studio. They found a great spot in Jacksonville, Oregon, and signed a lease. 
Of course, Alper's second caveat was totally thrown out the window. According to Google Google Maps, uh, I checked this, it's in fact about 700 miles and a 10-hour drive between the two offices. They sent a memo out to Virgin staff by and by mid-January in 1991, Divine, Landros, and their wives had relocated to Jacksonville. Uh, the two men were 50-50 partners in their new studio, which they had named Trilobite. Their office was on the second floor of the old city hall building built in 1895. The first floor was the local tavern. The office had pine walls and a huge fireplace. This was not a big corporate institution. They hired a local waitress named Diane Moses to run the administrative side of things and work on guest began. So the guys modeled Stoff Mansion after a local mansion named Noonan House and uh, their initial idea was to go in and take some stills to use as the game screens. However, a more interesting opportunity came along in the form of Robert Stein, a former coworker from Virgin. He had been beta testing a new product called 3D Studio. He rendered a living room that contained a haunted floating chair. Landeros was sold. Divine was okay with the idea, but he suspected they'd only be able to render the scenes in black and white since the transfer rate on CD-ROMs at the time was too slow to render the scenes in color. Regardless, Stein was brought on to do the, uh, some more of the art and the 3D work on Guest. Now, Divine was a programming genius, and Landeros was an amazing and talented artist, but neither of them were writers. To pen the game, they hired a well-established New York horror writer named Matt Costello, who would later go on to write things like the story of Doom 3. The three decided on a classic horror story, and uh, Costello got to work fleshing out the world of Stoff, his toys, and his haunted mansion. The main goals for writing and game design were that it had to be scary, and it had to be accessible. The game had to be single-click. This, of course, limited some of the types of puzzles they could do, but they persevered. The three men went back and forth via phone and email, since uh, Landros and Divine were uh, were in Oregon, and Costello was still in New York. At this time... The name was also changed to The Seventh Guest. So with the script and puzzles done, they had to do some filming. Of course, the main reason for doing this game on CD-ROM was to include full motion video. They hired some of the actors from the local Shakespeare company and filmed the FMV sequences in front of black butcher papered walls with some super VHS cameras and a $35,000 budget. Interesting that they used black instead of blue for the chroma key and the, you know, Stuff like that, but hey, I won't ask questions. While that was going on, the fat man was composing the score as we've already discussed in the the tech focus. So they had all the pieces of their game, now they had to put it together. You'd figure this would be the easiest part, but of course, no one had ever done this before on a CD-ROM. So the team totaled six people at this point. We had the two founders, Stein doing the 3D art, and Diane Moses doing the admin stuff in Jacksonville. Costello was in New York, and the fat man was in Texas. The team hunkered down and worked through 1991. The biggest challenge was how to get the data off of the CD-ROM. This was Divine's project. The problem was that traditionally, games would be stored on the hard disk, and the relevant files would be accessed and read into memory when they were needed. Now, the video files were much, much too large for this to be feasible. Divine's solution was named Groovy. That's all capitals, G-R-O-O-V-I-E. It might be an acronym for something I couldn't find if it was or not. Uh, It was effectively the seventh guest's engine, which would mesh all the disparate parts of the game together. 
the biggest accomplishment for Groovy was the ability to stream data off the CD. This way, entire video files did not have to be copied to the disk before they could be used. They could just be taken off in a stream and read directly from the CD into memory. So Divine and Landeros went to the 1992 Consumer Electronics Show to meet up with Alper to show him how the game was progressing because up to this point, he had kind of given them a whole whack of cash, but uh, he kind of left them alone and um, he didn't really know where things were at. So the game wasn't done, nor was the music ready, but they definitely had a good tech demo that they could show him. So they met at the Virgin booth and uh, repurposed a machine to play Seventh Guest for Alper. What began as a private demo turned into a public spectacle as Alper started showing the game to the public, touting the amazing technology, streaming the video right off the CD. He'd show everyone the read light on the CD-ROM, steadily flickering to illustrate the point. Look, the light is flashing. It's taking stuff right off the disc. This is incredible. Now, no one had intended to lie about this, but in reality, Divine had copied the game to the machine's hard drive and no video was actually streaming. The CD-ROM light was flashing because they had put a Danny Elfman audio CD into the drive to give the currently musicless game some additional atmosphere. Despite that little flub, they generated the hype they needed. They went back to work, and by CES 1993, they had a full-blown working demo. It was again a huge hit of the show. Through this stress, uh, the camaraderie between Divine and Landeros flourished. They were really, really good buddies. They'd work together, hang out, watch movies. It was really great. Despite this great environment, as with any project, uh, it went a little bit over time, and their $600,000 was quickly running out. In the last few months of production, the two founders stopped drawing a salary. They knew this game was going to be great, so according to them, it was worth the temporary sacrifice. No one lost their house, anything like that, so hey, what are you going to do? Well, they weren't wrong. The game released in April of 1993 to huge critical acclaim and eventually sold over 2 million copies. In the first night alone, it sold an astonishing 60,000. Obviously, once FMV came into the equation, Alper's first caveat, having a disc version, also went out the window. But this had an interesting side effect. It turns out that, much like Myst, which released slightly after it in September of that year, the Seventh Guest was a killer app for CD-ROM drives. People invested the three or four hundred dollars needed to get their hands on a drive just to play this game. There's reports of CD-ROM sales going up by three hundred percent because of the Seventh Guest. Of course, with all the hype generated before the game's release, plans for a sequel were put into motion as early as October of 1992. As with any project, there were some things about The Seventh Guest that uh, Landeros didn't love, namely the poor video production quality of the first game. While the final technical touches were being put on The Seventh Guest, Costello was commissioned to write the sequel. Set 60 years after the first game, it is now 1995, and the player, as Carl Denning, is an investigative reporter for a television series, Case Unsolved. Robin Morales, his producer and lover, has mysteriously vanished while gathering background information surrounding a series of grisly murders and disappearances in the otherwise quiet little town of Harley on the Hudson once again. Denning's only solid lead is a portable computer called the Game Book delivered by persons unknown and postmarked in Harley, New York. He makes his way to Stealth Mansion and enters a realm of puzzles similar to that of the first game in an effort to find his lost 
Lover. So this is the story of the sequel to The Seventh Guest, The Eleventh Hour. Costello wrote a huge script. Bids came in at half a million dollars to shoot it. Since it was still late 1992, and The Seventh Guest hadn't even shipped at this point, the company didn't have the money for such an undertaking. They could swing about 135000 David Wheeler, a local TV director, said he could do it for that budget. No problem. Of course, that meant rewriting and cutting down the script, which Wheeler did himself. Costello was not pleased with the result. According to him, Wheeler's version fundamentally changed the characters and heavily increased the levels of both violence and sexuality in the story. Despite this, with Divine focusing on finishing The Seventh Guest, Landeros went ahead with principal shooting. This is where the issues began. Principal shooting started very shortly before the huge release of The Seventh Guest, and Divine was completely occupied with getting the engine up and running, fixing bugs, blah blah blah. However, he made a visit one day to the soundstage where filming was being done. So he walked into a scene of an actress wearing black tights, a spike collar, and nothing else. Upon seeing this, he pulled Landeros aside and said he was incredibly uncomfortable with the direction that this game was going in. Seventh Guest was scary, but the whole family could still play it. This was not turning out to be a game he could be proud to tell his wife he was making. He was told by Landros that they'd film multiple versions of the scene and later decide which to use. Eventually, the toplessness and R-rated stuff was dropped, but that was only the beginning of the problems. Divine continued to withdraw from the project and tensions between the two founders grew. No one outside of Landeros really noticed since the seventh guest had released and blown everyone's sales expectations out of the water. They thought everything was great. Now, the original technical idea for the 11th hour was to take the seventh guest engine and reuse it. It was perfectly acceptable. This was fine until the principal filming was all done and Divine sat down in his house with his wife to watch the 64-minute theatrical cut of uh, the videos for the game. In the first scene, we see the main character riding his motorcycle at high speed past fast-moving trees. Divine just about had a shit. The video encoding routines in the groovy engine would not be able to handle such fast-moving scenes with dynamic camera movement. In fact, if you remember MPEG video encoding from... Heck, even five years ago, you know, 2008, 2007, even then, MPEG video couldn't even couldn't handle fast moving scenes very, very well. There was a lot of ghosting and blurring and and stuff like that. He immediately ran over and told Wheeler that he needed to keep the camera still for any of this stuff to work. Wheeler retorted that he had never been told any of this and both of the men had ample opportunity to tell him this wasn't what they needed. And frankly, he was right. Landeros either didn't think of it or didn't know, and Divine was so engrossed in getting the seventh guest released that no one brought it up. No one looked at the dailies. No one did anything. So the video was shot. It was all done, and they didn't have the money to redo it. They had to go with it. So this led Divine to start a rewrite of the game's core engine. This caused huge delays and ended up pushing the release of the game from 1994 to 1995. The 11th hour released to poor reviews in November of the year 1995, over a year late. So, what does the future hold for the seventh guest? And this was actually the impetus for me doing uh, 
doing this episode at this moment in time. Turns out that Rob Landeros and Trilobite, they're still around, launched a Kickstarter a few weeks back to try and create the seventh guest three, The Collector. Uh, this game is intended to rebuild Stoff Mansion in current day technology and include at least 20 new puzzles with an entirely new story to explore. Well, this seems like a really great idea. It appears that with only 11 days to go, they are very, very short of their $435,000 goal. In fact, as of yet, they haven't even broken $100,000, so it doesn't look like this game is going to fund. Does this mean it won't happen? Well, it won't via Kickstarter, at least, barring some kind of miracle. So despite the stalled Kickstarter, you can definitely get your hands on both of the existing games on both Steam and GOG for $9.99 each. They run in ScumVM without any trouble at all. This is actually the first time that uh, I've gotten a game from GOG that had a native ScumVM install as opposed to DOSBox. Uh, I played the GOG versions myself. In addition to these, you can get an iOS version of the seventh guest on the app store for $4.99 USD. So there's still lots of ways to play these games, even if uh, the new Kickstarter doesn't, uh, doesn't pan out. Do you ever wish you could go back in time? Join me on Out of Range Podcast, and you almost can, when I rediscover childhood favourites from TV, movies, toys, comic books, and much more. The usually irregular, but always entertaining geeky media show, Out of Range, can be found at dangelous.com slash outofrange. Search for Out of Range in iTunes, or the podcast app of your choice. Okay, time for a bunch of emails from you guys. First off, we've got a voicemail from the Space Quest Historian, official podcaster for the two guys from Andromeda and Space Venture. He's going to try and help me make some sense of the story of the seventh guest. Take it away, sir. Hi, I'm the Space Quest Historian, but I play other games as well. And one of those games I was really excited about back when I got my first CD-ROM drive as a kid was The Seventh Guest. Because, hey, who didn't want to play the 7th guest when they had a CD-ROM drive back in 1993? I mean, the thing came bundled with a bunch of CD-ROM drives and basically ushered in not only the full-motion video craze, but because it was also the first game that didn't have a simultaneous disc release, it ended up selling a crapload of CD-ROM drives. So, naturally, walking around the mansion and being stunned at the full-motion video and the sprawling SVGA-rendered mansion and the brain-melting puzzles, of course, distracted us from the fact that the story didn't seem to make a whole hell of a lot of sense. On the surface, the game is your typical haunted house mystery with a cast of ghostly characters, each with their own secret desire that they hope Stoff can help them achieve. And, of course, being ghosts, we know that whatever their shallow hearts desire is what will eventually lead them to their deaths, as they attempt to solve the puzzles of the mad toymaker's house. We've got Martine Burden, the campy tramp, whose heart is anything but gold, and who uh, well, romances Edward Knox, the overbearing womanizing husband of Eleanor Knox, who's pretty oblivious and yet ends up being the one who helps failed magician Hamilton Temple solve the mystery of Stoff's soul-sucking hobby. And then we've got harpy alcoholic Julia Heine, <laughs> and the selfish money-grubbing Brian Dutton, who are really just there to foil the crap out of the remaining characters. So far, so good. Every time you solve a puzzle, you get a little glimpse of what went on in the house as the guests were trying to solve the puzzles themselves, before each were stricken with a bad case of the death. 
but the story is told out of order, and there's plenty of supernatural, mysterious occurrences that just seem to be there to trip you up. Or maybe they're hallucinations that Stoff throws at the guests in order to mess with their heads. Fuck if I know. Because the game doesn't tell you. When Eleanor Knox sees a head popping out of the soup and telling her to bring the boy to the room at the top, are we seeing what Eleanor saw? And in that case, why doesn't she just leap out of the freaking window in horror? I mean, I know we can't leave us, the player, because we're trapped here, forced to watch these spectral events play out over and over again. Uh, whoops, spoiler. But if I were her just walking around the mansion and rearranging cans in the pantry and wondering what slice of sickly skull and gravestone cake to have next, I'd be scared shitless and out the fucking door in a heartbeat if the soup just suddenly started striking up conversations with me. Or what about when Dutton finds a strange door in his bedroom, loudly and pointlessly exclaiming, I've solved the puzzle. What puzzle? And then he enters the inexplicable cathedral that Stoff had built for reasons that are never fully explained, only to find Stoff himself playing a baby child on the altar and offering Dutton a chance to go stab Happy on it. Yeah, what the fuck was up with that? And who's the skeleton playing the organ? None of that makes any sense, and, and you can argue that it's just there to give the game some flavor of the unexpectedly creepy that has no real bearing on the plot. But the non-linear na nature of the narrative also leaves some strange gaps that seriously made me lose sleep. At one point we see Martine Burden taking a relaxing nap in the bathtub in the upstairs bathroom, only to be pulled down under the water by some unseen force apparently killing her. And in the sequel to The Eleventh Hour, there's even a skeleton bobbing around in a pool of red gunk in that same bathroom, so I think we can safely assume that Martine met her fate here during the events of The Seventh Guest. But later in the game, once we find our way through that infuriating basement maze, uh, we come across the crypt. Again, what's Stoff doing with a crypt full of coffins in this house? I, I guess only he knows for sure, and his contractor surely must have gone over the floor plans going, what the fuck? Um... We see Hamilton Temple, the magician, trying to protect the boy Tad from a devilish, face-morphing Martine Burden. And as Hamilton exclaims, it's just an illusion, we see Martine's face warp and distort horribly. And it's pretty clear that both Tad and Hamilton see this happening. But is that really Martine Burden, or is it one of Stoff's illusions? I mean, we just saw Martine take a bubble bath to the hereafter. Is Martine really dead at this point, or is, and is this just... A zombie Martine trying to take Tad up to the attic room to have his soul hoovered? There are hints of a linear story throughout the game, culminating in the final climax in the attic room, but getting there is just one big clusterfuck of disjointed scenes that are triggered out of order, even though the game has to be solved in some sort of order, as solving one puzzle leads to another door in the house being unlocked and another puzzle being made available to the player. Now, I haven't read the novel, so I can't say if this is just a simple matter of the game and or stuff messing with our minds, but from a game-playing standpoint, this is just one of many instances where the game takes a dive out a left-field window and leaves you to scratch your head and pick the pieces up for yourself. So, yeah, that's my recap of the story of The Seventh Guest. I'm sure it made a fascinating amount of sense to Matthew Costello and the gang at Trilobite, but for me, the player, I spent almost as much time headaching over the plot and narrative as I did those aggravating chess puzzles. And yet... I fucking love this game. I, I've played it a number of times, I've played it a million times, I've probably played it a zillion times, and it's and, and watching the campy actors and the weird blue screen, which has made all the more ghostly and, and weird because they filmed it on a black screen instead of a blue screen and all that jazz, just makes it even more fun to play. And, you know, infuriating puzzles being one thing, but the story actually does leave you with a sense of, hey, what the fuck is going on? And you, and you really want to try to figure this out, even as the game throws red herring after red herring at you. So, that's my spiel. Back to you, Mr. Block. Thank you, Mr. Questorian. That was 
frankly, a, a much better synopsis of the story than I could provide because I think I said it already. But if I haven't, like I said I, I, I have I never played this game when it first came out, and I feel like if I had, this is kind of how I would have been. I was the 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 guy, the kid, the teen, young teenager that would sit in front of Star Trek: The Next Generation episodes, holding the nitpickers guide open. I'd like I, it was important for me. Or to me, for for things to make sense, and I think kind of in the way this story is told, there are a lot of gaps. There are a lot of things. I I would actually be interested in getting my hands on uh, on on the novelization just to see how they tie it all together. Because yes, there are certainly uh, a whole lot of uh, of inconsistencies here. So thanks again. Next, we have a message from good friend of the show, Elima. She writes, Greetings, Joe and fellow blockers. Really glad you're covering the seventh guest this week. The game is definitely a big one in my gaming history. My first memory of the game is watching a friend play it at his house. Uh, He was a few years older than I was, so he had a better handle on the game and figured some puzzles that were beyond me. Of course, my dad did eventually buy it for himself, but I just had to play it. I remember sitting at the desk in our basement, launching the game and being so scared that I wouldn't even get past the credits. I'd hear the thunder and creepy violin and would scramble to pull the PC's plug. What can I say? I was 10 at the time and a bit of a scaredy cat. I got lucky and never caused any damage, thankfully. Eventually, I did build up the nerve to play the game, but never got very far on my own. I just loved exploring what rooms I could get to and watching the cutscenes. I remember walking around in the foyer, just enjoying the music, and I don't care what people say, those FMV sequences were great. I also enjoyed the cake puzzle in the dining room, the stained glass puzzle in the foyer, and the telescope puzzle in the library, probably because they weren't too hard. Fast forward 10 years later, and I did eventually play the whole game, and yes, that microscope puzzle in the lab made me want to pull my hair out. So maybe the FMV cutscenes weren't really as awesome as I remember, but you have to admit they were pretty nifty for the time. GOG had a sale not too long ago, and I grabbed a copy, so I replayed it yet again less than six months ago. Perhaps I'm biased, but I still enjoy the game to this day. The sequel, 11th Hour, I barely played it all. My sister, a huge fan of all things horror, did play through it, unlocking the three different endings. She agrees with me, though. It's not as good as the first. I'm also keeping an eye on the Kickstarter that launched this month for the 7th Guest 3, The Collector, which you probably already mentioned, but it doesn't look like it'll fund. Perhaps the era of FMVs has indeed passed. I'll be waiting to hear your opinion on it, but I'd still recommend the seventh guest to gamers who enjoy puzzles and haunted houses. Thanks again for doing the podcast, and I enjoy each and every episode. Alima slash Emily. Thank you, Alima. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I was kind of a scaredy cat myself when I was younger. I've I've never really been into horror movies and horror genre and horror games. Uh, you know, I never really played much of... Uh, What's it called? You know, the Jill, Barry, that game, uh, Resident Evil. That's it. Uh, you know, I never really played many Resident Evil games or anything like that. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go over it in a bit more detail in, uh, in my final thoughts, if we want to go with the Jerry Springer uh, way of saying things, but, um, this game made me nervous. So thank you for your email as always. Next, we have an email from Martin. He writes, seventh guest was always a weird game to me. It was introduced to me the summer all those Star Wars games were shown to me, but I was far too young to play it. What I did enjoy was watching my father play the game and figure out all the puzzles while I hid behind the chair. That game was scary to me. I don't know why, but the most vivid memory to me is the giant labyrinth. My dad had to use a player's guide to get past that part. 
When GOG released the game with all its bonus content, I told my dad and he was super ecstatic. He bought the game and me and him had a real trip into the past. We tried to explain to my younger brother by 10 years how important the game was to the industry because it was the first game to use FMV sequences, but he really couldn't care less. Hope you enjoyed playing it and keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Martin. And, you know, I think that's an interesting point how you're, you know, you're explaining to your younger brother how this game was very relevant and all these things. And I think it's like a lot of things, unless you, um, I don't want to say unless you were there, it's not important to you, but unless you have an appreciation and unless, you know, you care about such things, going back and showing someone, you know, something older and saying, you know, this was a seminal thing and this was very important for this reason, it doesn't have the same impact. Like for me, I enjoy movies, I enjoy TVs, stuff like that, but I'm not like a huge film buff. And if someone, you know, I think I was in a college class and we watched Citizen Kane, which is supposed to be like this pinnacle of filmmaking and cinematography and all these things. And I looked at it and to me, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of slow and it's kind of an old movie. And, you know, they have some funny camera angles. But, uh, you know, I guess for for a genre, for a, a platform, for a medium that you appreciate, it, it's, it's, it's really cool to kind of go back and, and, you know, resources like GOG and like Steam give us the opportunity to do that with, with, with games. And I think that's really important. So thanks again. Finally, I got a message from Colin. He writes, Hey Joe, the seventh guest was one of the many games that I bought for cheap on a GOG sale, but never actually got around to playing. When you announced this as your next game on the podcast, I figure I'd finally sit down and play it. Unfortunately, studying for finals is tying up most of my free time, so despite only being halfway through the game, I wanted to share a few thoughts. I really liked the B-horror movie atmosphere the game has. It reminded me a lot of the movie Clue. Well, that's convenient. Stuff's taunting throughout the game was the highlight for me. I'm always a sucker for a crazy over-the-top performance in a villain. I enjoyed all the brain teasers I found, but found a few of them really could have benefited from making the objective or rules more apparent. The story of the past... Uh, six guests seemed very hard to follow. This may just be because I haven't beaten the game yet, but at times it seemed as if I was seeing the scenes out of order, which was very confusing. Also, I didn't like not being able to skip scene transitions. I know these graphics were impressive back in the day, but seeing your character go up the staircase kind of lost its charm after the ninth or tenth time. Despite this, I did like the game and I'm looking forward to finishing it soon. Can't wait for the show, Colin. P.S. I can't believe I almost forgot that dungeon maze can go die in a fire. I wandered around in there for over an hour before finally turning to a guide to get through. Maybe there's a clue somewhere, but I didn't find it. Ugh. Thanks, Colin. And see, so you're in the same boat as me. I definitely knew about the game. I knew what it was about. I knew kind of the genre and all that stuff, but I had never played it. And so playing through it now was was actually a very interesting uh interesting experience because i had kind of both you know this isn't like me going back and playing wing commander a game that i knew inside and out or like space quest or king's quest or something like that where i could be transported back to you know 1988 1989 1990 you know i'm like oh you know 10 10 years old and you know just experiencing the game as a 10 year old kind of a lot of it going over my head and then slowly getting it through the years and stuff like that. Here I'm going back and saying, okay, well, I know what games were like at this time and I can appreciate it for how it was, but I'm experiencing it as me, you know, 2013, 32 year old guy or whatever. So, you know, I think it's definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting angle to play these games from. So thanks everyone for all those emails. 
send them in podcast at umbcast.com. I love it. Got a good amount this week and please keep on sending them in. If you have some thoughts on the seventh guest, don't be afraid. Send them in. I'll read them at the beginning of the next show and uh, keep them coming. You are listening to the Upper Memory Podcast. So now that I've heard what you guys have to say, time for my opinion. Does the seventh guest hold up today? Well, I haven't been keeping track, but I think I'm on a pretty positive roll here, and I will say yes. Of course, as I tend to do, I am not saying yes wholeheartedly. First, the negatives. This is a slowly paced game. Movement is slow, as Colin just said. The puzzles are slow. If you're in a rush or you want action and excitement, this is not the game for you. From a purely modern, aesthetic, artistic perspective, does the FMV and acting hold up? No. The acting is pretty cheesy. It's definitely B-horror movie or, you know, sci-fi Saturday night movie level. Uh, The FMV, while groundbreaking for the time, is definitely very muddy. As we heard in the voicemail and I experienced firsthand, the story might make a ton of sense, but the fact that it's played out of order can really rankle a person on if, if they're focused on that kind of thing. Those issues aside, however, here is why I think you should play this game. Firstly, When it comes to placing this game in history and looking at its influence on FMV and the adoption of CD-ROM as a gaming platform and the gaming industry in general, this is a must-play. Secondly, despite the somewhat confusing story and muddy FMV sequences, The Seventh Guest does an incredibly great job at creating a foreboding atmosphere. Being that I didn't play this game when it originally came out, my research playthrough for this episode, part of which you can watch over on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash umbcast, that was actually the first time I experienced the seventh guest. Not knowing what was going to happen, whether or not I could die, and moving from room to room in the old creepy mansion honestly made me nervous. At the top of the stairs, there's, there's this framed painting. If you click it, hands try and press through the canvas accompanied by wailing. It honestly freaked me out. If you haven't played it before, this can be a pretty scary experience, even as an adult. Finally, the puzzles are damn challenging. They start off fairly straightforward, but ramp up very, very quickly. This is probably one of the main reasons I didn't play this game back in 1993, aside from the fact that I don't like horror. I have never been good at puzzle games, and I am still not good at them to this day. I had to use a walkthrough to get my way through. I can certainly see spending hours and hours trying to figure things out, especially back in 93, when you couldn't just jump over to GameFAQs and figure out what you were doing wrong. Uh, Russell DeMaria, who wrote the strategy guides for X-Wing and TIE Fighter that I read when I was... uh, well, that I read back in the day and that I reread when I was doing that episode, uh, apparently also put out a guide for this game. I'd be interested in getting my hands on it to see if he did the same as he did in those other guides, which was kind of stringing the solutions to the problems together with some kind of form of loose narrative. Anyways, all that to say, for challenging puzzles, creep factor, and its incredible importance to the history of PC gaming, I say play the seventh guest. As for the 11th hour, I won't say it's an awful game, In fact, I know some folks that quite enjoy it. It just isn't nearly as good as the original. All right, before I close things out, I think it's long time for another giveaway. 
This time around, since I just suggested that you all try it, I am giving away a Steam pack of both the 7th Guest and the 11th Hour. As usual, just drop me an email with the subject line 7th Guest Giveaway and your Steam ID, and I will draw the winner eh, probably two episodes from now. So you'll got, we, got, we got four weeks. I know some people don't listen to the show kind of right, right when it comes out, though you all should be. I'm very disappointed in all of you who don't. Anyways, so drop me an email and, uh, you know, I'll post on the Facebook group and on Twitter and all that stuff to remind everyone. But uh, if you want to play the seventh guest, you want to play the 11th hour, you want it for free, drop me a line. So that is that. Thank you, everyone who dropped me a line this time around. I love your comments and everything everyone does to contribute to the show. It's so much more fun when it's not just me blathering on for an hour. Next time, I feel like I haven't hit a big Sierra franchise in quite a while. So I'm going to take on another one of my favorites, Police Quest. I'm going to try and cover all the games, though I'm not 100% sure uh, if I'll be covering the SWAT titles in this show or on their own. I'm kind of leaning towards on their own so I can focus on, uh, on, the, uh, on the first set. So get ready for some procedural action in the town of Lytton. As always, please send email or audio comments to podcast.umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find all his stuff at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We have a lot of fun there. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash groups slash umbcast and on YouTube where I ineptly play through parts of the uh, games that I'm gonna cover hopefully i'm gonna get quite a few streams in for the various police quest titles this week at youtube.com slash umbcast subscribe to the show on itunes stream us live at stitcher radio leave me some five-star reviews that's that and we will see you next time for police quest here in the upper memory block
You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.